this podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, November 14th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Nancy Pelosi was in full flower and fine fettle today, calling out crazy questions and even bestowing nicknames upon the guy who worked for Sinclair Broadcasting. Well, let me just say this. I'll say to you, Mr. Republican Talking Points, what I said to the President of the United States. When you talk about the whistleblower, you're coming into my wheelhouse. And when you come into her wheelhouse, you learn what grinds the speaker's gears. When Pelosi gestured to James Rosen, who's the Sinclair guy, she literally showed him the back of her hand. Come to my wheelhouse, crawl inside, wait by the light of the moon, and the smackdown hadn't even begun to be fully laid down. And if the president has something that is exculpatory, Mr. President, that means you have anything that shows your innocence. Yes, those are, those are the best words. You know, a lot of time, Pelosi just does the normal kind of regular things that Pelosi does, and people fall all over themselves because she's such a badass. Like when she offered the seal clap during the State of the Union and Twitter went nuts. Such a sarcastic rebuke. Hashtag resistance. Hashtag Wolverines. But then her daughter said, nah, she just sometimes claps like that. Just a thing. But this press conference, this was Nancy Pelosi with a spring in her step and a lilt in her voice. What is uh, the president has admitted to and says it's perfect. I said it's perfectly wrong. It's bribery. Ooh, lay in the proverbial adverbial wood. It's perfectly wrong. Perfectly outlandish. Perfectly impeachable even. Oh, wow. I'm snagglepussing. Gotta watch that. But this is Happy Nancy. Reluctant Nancy wanted Trump to self-impeach. Cautious Nancy, rightly worried that an overly aggressive impeachment would harm the Democrats. But this is happy, pleased, emboldened Nancy. It's a sign that day one of the hearings went great in the eyes of Democratic leadership. Day two is tomorrow, and we will see if the speaker helpfully defines any other words for the president. Words like maybe suborn or mens rea or... And I hope we get this one inculpatory. That would be perfectly delightful. Apt even. On the show today, the reviews are in. And there was a deficit of oomph, a paucity, a vim, a lack of pizzazz. But it is okay because we have your pizzazzlessness cure-all. But first... Donald Trump would be nothing without the allure of scandal and the attention of the tabloids. And the king of the tabloids for years was the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer was once a cheap escape for middle American housewives who longtime staffers called Missy Smith from Kansas City. Then the Enquirer morphed from that to a political player to eventually becoming something like the private investigatory arm of the current occupant of the White House. How it got there is a tale you will not believe. Steve Koz, longtime editor-in-chief of The Inquirer, and Mark Landsman, documentarian, are here to talk about the new film, Scandalous, the true story of the National Enquirer.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. There was a time when the National Enquirer was a behemoth that strode the earth, where if not the earth, the supermarket checkout aisle. It helped define the zeitgeist. But the stakes were, well, for some people, quite high if you were involved in scandal. But mostly, you know, did Elizabeth Taylor go off her last diet? Did she lose her last husband? And then things began to change, ironically or maybe predictably. As the Enquirer lost circulation, it somehow gained importance just because it became willing to play dirty in American politics. A history of the National Enquirer leading up to the moment that we're in right now has been committed to film. The director is Mark Landsman. Also with us is Steve Koz, who is the National Enquirer's editor-in-chief. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thank, Thank you, Mike. Mike. Mark, were you going to do this film before the Donald Trump-David Pecker catch-and-kill connection? The idea for the film first came about in, in late 2015, 2016, just from being in the supermarkets and seeing the bizarre universe that was the supermarket checkout line at that point and the sort of this array of billboards in our face. Uh, that was totally novel to me. I hadn't seen that before, and I was wondering why that was the case. And then... Very soon thereafter, I was having dinner in Los Angeles with my wife's best friend's dad. And at that dinner, he starts to regale us with stories of his former career as a reporter at the National Enquirer in its earliest days, in its heydays. Who is that? Malcolm Balfour. Oh, okay. That's your wife's best friend's dad. Yes. and He's all over the documentary, and he does a lot of the wonderful slash scurrilous things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's the one that said that most of their activities were borderline illegal. Yeah. (laughs) So um, he started to tell us these stories and uh, talked about checkbook journalism, bribes, unconventional sources, disguises, espionage, and it just sounded like a great spy novel. It, It did, but... But when you're watching it from today's perspective, and I'm sure when you're making the film, you would have to emphasize certain parts that maybe Donald Trump didn't become president, you wouldn't have. So for instance, you go early on about how Bob Hope was the subject to what became known as catch and kill, or at least leveraging the dirt you had on a celebrity to access. And I don't know without what we're seeing now, if that would have been you know so important in the history of the Inquirer. I don't think so. I think back in the day, it was just called a trade out and it was a this trade-out. it was part of the practice of this sort of holy triumvirate between a celebrity, their publicist, and the National Enquirer. So the National Enquirer was a spy network, and it had sources everywhere, including people's agents and managers and sisters and brothers and hairstylists, and they knew everything. And so they would come to a star's publicist and say, look, we know that Bob Hope has this issue, and we'll run a story on it, but maybe you have something better to give us. And they would trade out information like, okay, well, we'll give you Bob Hope at home in an exclusive Christmas special, and you won't run the story that you know. And that was different, profoundly different from the practices of catch and kill. That was different from, say, you know, we know that X celebrity is sleeping with their nanny. Well, the practice of catch and kill is we're going to talk to that nanny. Mm-hmm. We're going to convince the nanny that we are going to get her story out to the widest possible audience, maybe give you a book deal, maybe a television deal, whatever it is. And then we're just going to have you sign this piece of paper. 
and this piece of paper is going to sign your rights to this story away in perpetuity forever all over the universe. Right. And that's catch and kill because that story never sees the light of day. That's different. Yeah, that is different. The similarity is that the National Enquirer finds dirt on a celebrity that normally would be in the National Enquirer and then what they do with the dirt. In both cases, they don't put in the Enquirer. One reason is to leverage it for further stories. And another reason is, well, whatever the motivation behind Catch and Kill might be. To bury it. To bury it. But there's got to be a reason that they're buried. Well, you're burying a story to protect a powerful person who doesn't want their reputation compromised in the case of the president or in the case of other people that are outlined in the film. I mean, and I think rather than a trade out that we've just talked about, it's just, no, this will never see the light of day. So, Steve, when did and the film gets into this and you wore preppy Ivy League clothes and went to Harvard? So uh, congratulations <laughs> on that. But uh, thank you. When you got to the Inquirer, did they have to tell you how the game was played? Had you heard about it? No, you, you learned it. You learned it along the way. Yeah. The difference back then, by the way, when the trade-outs were occurring, it was a trade-out for something that would sell more papers. It was yes. all about selling more papers. So Bob Hope's scandal story might be a one or two-issue story, but Bob Hope forever giving you access. It's going to sell yeah. more papers. Mm-hmm. And then when you move to the catch and kill, what you're doing is you're catching and killing a story that will sell papers yeah. to the benefit of not the reader, of to not selling papers, to the benefit of ownership. Yes. So that is the big difference between the catch and kill and the old trading days. And the, the symbiotic relationship between the celebrities... And the National Enquirer was amazing. The publicists were constantly on the phone with us. The celebrities were constantly on the phone with us. They wanted to be in the National Enquirer until they reached a certain level of celebrity. That they didn't need you anymore. They didn't need us anymore. So that was the game. But then when they reached that level, like Bob Hope and Bill Cosby, and maybe Farrah Fawcett. I'm not sure if Farrah would fall in this category. She seemed pretty big big at the time. Big seller. Okay, so there you go. All right, number one poster in every kid's room in 1970. At that point, that's when you want to leverage the scandalous story against just future content about what, you know, where are they Or, or we'd run the scandalous story. It would. depends. If they called up and said, no, no, we, we'll give you this, would be like, no. Did they Sorry. negotiate terms and sometimes it fell oh, apart based on uh, negotiation? Negotiate is a very nice word. Scream uh-huh. fest terms. Uh-huh. You know, it'd be screaming matches over the phone. There'd be lawyers brought in, publicists brought in. Uh, it would turn into a big brouhaha over a specific story. Yeah. Until we carved out as best we could to satisfy all sides or satisfy no sides and just publish. Okay, I don't want to I don't want to not call this out. This isn't exactly ethical. I mean, I know it's fun and helped the inquirer and is more ethical than catch and kill. But would you defend the Bob Hope story trading as ethical? Would you defend the Bill Cosby one that didn't allow these issues out into the open as ethical? Well, you got to look at the difference because people keep on saying, you know, elite journalists versus the Inquirer. Okay. Yes. Our job was to sell newspapers. We're not trying to be elite journalists. We're trying to sell the most product on the newsstand in America. And along that path, we did a lot of deals, a lot of compromises, et cetera, et cetera. Ethical you know, you stray in and out when you're in that mode of journalism, right? Remember, GP's goal, Generoso Pope's goal was to sell newspapers. Yeah, Generoso Pope, go get the founder of the Inquirer. Founder of the Inquirer. Go get the story. If yeah. you don't get the story, you're gone. Meanwhile, he's handing out a l- large salaries to his employees. Mainstream journalist was uh, on a more ethical track, if we want to keep using that word, uh-huh. which I don't know quite what it means anymore. And then everything sort of merges together. And that's where why we end up at this mess we're in. What was so you talked about the importance of different celebrities? How big was Trump? What did Trump mean when he was, you know, playboy of the 90s and 80s? That's a very good question. Uh, Trump was barely on our radar. 
barely on the radar. First time Trump came onto our radar was when the pictures of Marla Maples in her bikini mm-hmm. come out with best sex I ever had or whatever it was. And that just took... It was that, yes. <laughs> it, just, it just took him to now national level. And that's where he celebrity. wanted to be, right? Yeah. Yes. And as you, so what's the name? Larry Haley was the full-time yeah. reporter yeah, assigned he, to them? The, the Trump editor. The Trump editor. Yes. He demonstrated a form of ethics by saying, I never took a ride from him. I never took anything but a Diet Coke from this guy. Right. But Trump treated him like he was on the payroll. Because I guess for Trump, he was. All Trump wanted was publicity. Yeah, I mean, I think it was so interesting that he, that Trump saw people, first of all, initially in New York, at the Post and the Daily News as his employees, as people who were there to sort of be his PR people. And he played them masterfully. You know, we know that he used to call into the New York tabloids and disguise himself as a PR person representing himself, which is just hilarious. John Barron. John Barron or John Miller, you know, in, in one case. And it was interesting to hear from these Inquirer guys that when he first came up in the world, they didn't even look at him twice. They were like, he's a New York guy. He's a New York real estate guy. Why would we? He's not a celebrity. Right. And then this Marla Maples thing happens and suddenly America's ears are peaked to this guy. But And there's a note in the movie that he was studying you. He was studying the Inquirer, or did this mean all the tabloids, but maybe it meant specifically the Inquirer as to how to acquire a microphone to a different audience than what he was used to. Did you see that happening? No, I didn't see it as much. I know who you're talking about. It's uh, Larry Haley, who was the reporter assigned to him, uses that. I mean, Trump definitely appreciated the Inquirer and was definitely asking questions about how the story would be presented, how it would run. Would we say he had billions? You know, would it would it that say was, he had, that was very important to him? Beautiful, to beautiful women and billionaire. billionaire. Those are the two most important words yeah. to him. But that and, was during your your tenure, Steve. I think yeah. it's pretty undeniable. I think you can connect the dots between the kind of jargon that he was absorbing from the front pages of the New York tabloids and the kind of yeah. jargon that he employed on the campaign trail and from the Oval Office. You know, he is our tabloid mm. president, and he borrows from that. So I think when Larry in the in the movie says that he was studying us and studying how we could be a megaphone to our particular audience. You know, Donald Trump was not appealing to middle America when he was first coming up. He right. was, no. a, you know, he's an, an urbane New Yorker. What did Missy Smith in Kansas City care about that? But let's not underestimate how smart Donald Trump is unto himself. You know, how he's a walking, talking PR machine. Yeah. And uh, the Inquirer held hands with him through his birth into the national realm. Let's also not underestimate what the Inquirer got in return. This was symbiotic. Yeah. You know, in the, in return, they got someone who sold papers off the shelves. Yeah. People started to become, like you said, obsessed with, with yeah. this guy and his hubris, you know? Okay. So here's where I'm a little confused. Donald Trump is who Donald Trump is and is now getting more national recognition and the, and the Inquirer and he have a bit of a symbiotic relationship during your tenure. Yes. At the same time, this guy, David Pecker, takes over the Inquirer. Pecker has some bad business ideas about how to run the Inquirer. Does Pecker know Trump? Does Pecker know Trump through the Inquirer? Does Pecker come in as a Republican, as someone who likes Trump? I'm unclear on all that. You have to remember that David Pecker was an institution in New York media f- deep into the 90s. He was he was working for Hachette Filipaki, and yeah. then after that, he started George Magazine with JFK Jr. in the 90s. I think he was an equal opportunity. He was an opportunist. Right. And, you know, the bright, shiny object at the moment was where he went. So when George, the opportunity for George to happen came to him and for him to stand on a dais with JFK Jr., it was ideal. When he first walked in the door of the Inquirer, Chuck Schumer. Yeah. He was Chuck Schumer's buddy. We started running Chuck Schumer stories, you know. (sighs) 
I mean, again, good ones New or bad York ones? Good ones. <laughs> like, what's a good and then, Trump and then humor was, story that was, would sell in the Inquirer? The word came leaking down, yeah. you know, lay off the Clintons. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's when Peckham first walked through the door. Right. And then the Donald Trump connection, which he had through uh, the magazine world up here in New York, grew during Florida time and during New York time. And then Pecker started flying back and forth on Donald's private jet. Right. And they grew some more. When when did your tenure with the Enquirer end? 2003. I lasted very hard working with David Pecker. Yeah. Very hard because we had two different brains as far as the approach to what this was. I wanted to stay with the Enquirer formula and push internet. Yeah. And he wanted this slick vehicle for advertising. And well, and it also seems it must be, have been frustrating that you were right and he was wrong, but he was the one who got to make the ultimate decision. You said it, not me. <laughs> well, in 2003, he didn't want to lean into the internet. You tell me what that means. But what about the anthrax scare? Did that, it must have been hard to go through, but in terms of your long-term longevity, did that weigh upon you? Uh, it, it gave us an immediate hit in sales. Look at you. <laughs> Look at how you answer that. I ask about emotions and feelings. But go ahead. That's what the, my wife says. I try to emulate human behavior. I can take the tablet guy out of the tabloid. Oh, my God. Give us a hit. We had the big pop. <laughs> yeah. uh, anthrax was very terrifying. Yes. Uh, you know, we watched our friend die, and then there was this panic to try to get this drug called Cipro, a heavy antibiotic, yeah. into your system before the anthrax spores flourished in your lungs. And if there's they a flourished... run on Cipro. Was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the supplies yeah. of it were. Right. Yeah. So if you didn't get the Cipro in you before the spore exploded in your lungs, you're a dead man. If you yeah. took it after it uh, had occurred, had flourished, you're dead. So that was a terrible panic time. How it hit the Inquirer was people thought by buying the Inquirer they could get anthrax. I see. So it, we took an enormous hit in sales. People didn't want to be near Inquirer employees mm -hmm. because they thought they could get it contagiously. So it was a terrible, terrible two to three months period. Then the public became educated that you couldn't get anthrax through a satellite transmitted electronic that was printed in a different location and the readers came back. But from an emotional level, it was pretty much devastating to a lot of us and scarred us. And to this day, the theory is the Inquirer was targeted because of the name American media? American media. Plus, if you think about it, you're, you're a terrorist from a foreign country. You go into every 7-Eleven in America, right? Yeah, yeah. You walk down the aisle, and what do you see? Yeah. You see the National Enquirer. You sure. go, that's Americana. And right. then the, during that particular period, post 9-11, yeah. we were doing a lot of anti-Bin Laden stories. Right. Blasting on the cover. I just want to make clear, though, that, that this is a cold case that has never been solved. Never and been it's solved. never been attributed to terrorism. I mean, there's no, there's no... The FBI has never concluded. Yeah, it's not conclusive. Yeah. Let me ask you a challenging question, mm -hmm. which is in the movie, at the end, there are many veterans of the Inquirer who sort of bemoan what's happened to it and talk about it in its heyday, and there's there's a wistful tone. But if the Inquirer, so the Inquirer did turn into this, you know, horrible propaganda machine that doesn't even sell, that has allowed, to some degree, Donald Trump to do what he did. But if the Inquirer didn't start off where it started off, which is much less reputable, much more willing to shade the truth, much more willing to engage in these deals, wouldn't its corruption have been more difficult? The mission was to sell. Yes. Now, your, your, the corruptibility seems to be the tactics. Uh -huh. The tactics that were used for the, by the Inquirer were used to sell newspapers. That's what we did. We paid sources. We went to extreme lengths. We had deals with celebrities. We had deals with publicists. Yes, we did all that. Is that corruption? It's corruption if you're the New York Times at the same time period. We're a tabloid. We're yellow journalists. This is what we do. We right. don't make any bones about well, it. Well, I guess here's time. my question. The Inquirer would go up to the line at times. 
Yes. Now that it's gone over the line, isn't it fair to say, well, it was, you know, a pirate ship that was dancing with the devil at some point. It's it been going over the, the it's been going over the line for no, years. It's no, been no, going no, over no, the, no, I get I get what Mike's saying. Yeah. There was a dance going on that was on the dance floor. Yeah. And then it got slowly pushed off the dance floor. And oh. and that's where that's where it goes goes south. Steve Koz, former editor of the National Enquirer, and Mark Landsman is the director of Scandalous, the untold story of the National Enquirer, which is in select theaters uh, starting now. Thank you guys for coming in. Thank you so much, Mike. So good. Thanks. Perhaps you saw the hearings yesterday. Perhaps you saw the headline and story about the hearings that ran on NBC. Plenty of substance, but little drama on the first day of impeachment hearings, analysis, the two witnesses called Wednesday testified to Trump's scheme, but lacked the pizzazz necessary to capture public attention. Huh. What does this say about me? I'm a member of the public, and yet I thought it was interesting. Am I pizzazz deficient? Do I not respond to environmentally present pizzazz like a normal person would? Am I even human or am I some sort of anti-pizzazzial monster? Don't look at me. I'm hideously pizzazzless. Does life seem interesting to you when you're told it's rather rote for most people? Do friends and family have trouble being interested in things you find compelling? Does a fundamental upending of the norms of democracy somehow interest you, whereas others just turn away asking, what's the fuss? Are you dangerously pizzazz agnostic? Millions are. In fact, according to polls, it's more common than you may realize. In our brand new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, 49% of adults surveyed would like to see President Trump impeached and removed from office. You're not alone. There is a drug to help pizzazz upon. For adults experiencing attention or fascination in normally pizzazzless environments, Pizzazzapon can help. Pizzazzapon will restore your naturally occurring resistance to factual occurrences vital to the national interest which improperly compel you. Sprinkle Pizzazzapon upon a pizzazzless story and it will seem properly uncompelling. Fox viewers have taken Pizzazzapon in the face of serious news for years. Just listen to this celebrity endorsement. Morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt from Virginia. A pizzazzlian reflux or a pizzazzless affect might be symptoms of a deeper issue. Do not take pizzazzapon if you are menstruating, pregnant, attempting to get pregnant, once pregnant, or with a product of a pregnancy. Pizzazzapon should not be mixed with alcohol, antidepressants, or other drugs in the pizzazzapon family, including razzmatazium, razzledazzlefan, or moxifluxetine. Pizzazzapon has been known to cause in some patients incontinence, incompetence, uncontrollable sweating, flatulence, jazz hands, night terrors, dry mouth, wet pants, skin rashes, hot flashes, especially when the pizzazzless reporting is data bashes. Do not take pizzazzapon if you are allergic to pizzazzapon. Pizzazzapon has been known to decrease appetite, sex drive, and the ratings for the PBS NewsHour. Ask your doctor if pizzazzapon is right for you. Thanks, pizzazzapon. I thought I cared about the carefully laid out timeline of the selling of our democracy, but with Pizzazzapon, I realized, who cares what's on Bravo? Thanks, Pizzazzapon. Thanks, Pizzazzapon. Thank you, Pizzazzapon. Thanks, Pizzazzapon. You got me to rightly scoff at a boring hearing that, what? Is that a drag queen? 
in Congress? And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows that fellow Gist producer Christina DeJosa has got it. The Gist. We just found out that it is moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. But don't worry, it can be treated by Humera, Caracol, Otesla, Salukta, and Kazentix. Actually, two of those are cities in Kyrgyzstan, but there's no way of knowing which ones. Umpur Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.